The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Mark, chapter 3, verses 6 through 19. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bowen and Jairus, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. So we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. Um, we're up to about just at the beginning of the third chapter. And up to this point in this Gospel, we've seen Jesus doing all kinds of miracles, right? We've seen him casting out demons. We've seen him healing a guy with leprosy. We've seen a, him fix a guy with a deformed hand. We've seen him fix a paralyzed guy. And, and through this, Jesus is kind of, he's doing like things that you can see with your eyes, physical things that, that are, are really present. But he's also saying stuff like, I am the Son of Man, I'm the son of man. And he's forgiving sins. That's something only God can do. And so the Pharisees, the religious leaders are hearing Jesus. They're seeing what he's doing. And they're like, this guy is no bueno. This guy is not good. He's saying he's God and that's not cool. That's blasphemy. And so the Pharisees, they see this and they really dislike this. And, and, and uh, this verse in um, chapter 3 verse 6 tells us that they plan to destroy him, that they're coming up with, with ideas. It's like the mafia putting the hit out on Jesus, right? They're, they're kind of trying to formulate a plan to get rid of him and knock him off his horse. And so Jesus feels this sort of pressure. He feels this, this sense of hatred, and so he withdraws, and he goes away. But, but as he's trying to withdraw, there's, there's a little bit of an issue because as he's trying, you know, like going away for solitude, he's trying to get away from people. And here's this massive crowd following him. Scholars say that up to tens of thousands of people are following Jesus now. People are coming from all over. You saw all those cities uh, in the scripture reading. I don't even know how to pronounce half of them. I don't even know where they are on the map, but, but thankfully scholars do. And they say that people are coming up to 100 miles to come see Jesus. Now, they don't have cars. They don't have trains at this point. There's no airplanes. People are walking hundreds of miles, hundred of, hundred miles, something like that, to come see Jesus. Now, that's, that's a five days journey, a five days journey just to come see Jesus. Now, you have to be really serious about what you're trying to get to if you're going to walk for five days. I'm going to have a little confession for you um, that this has actually happened where I've, dro- I've, I've gone to Target and I've seen that the parking lot is full, right? Like cars everywhere, people everywhere. There's one parking spot way out in the boonies. And I'm, I'm like, man, I'm this is going to be a long walk, and I'm driving to this parking spot thinking, you know, do I really need to, to go into Target? Do I really need what, what I'm about to get? And somewhere along the line, I convince myself, nah, I, I don't really need what I'm going in for. So I just go home, right? Like, it, it's just too long of a walk to go from out in the boonies to the front door. So you have to be really serious about what you're getting to if you're going to walk five days. And there's a lot of people serious about this. There's a big crowd, like I said. And this crowd can create a lot of pressure. When I was in high school, um, my brother and I with some friends, we went to an a outdoor music festival sort of a thing. And uh, my brother's kind of weird. He likes to be up in the front and to, to witness everything from like a, a front row perspective. He'd be the weird kid sitting in the front row at the movie theaters with head crooked back. You know, he's like, dude, it's so awesome up front. I was like, no, man, you just got a sore neck. That's what happened. 
But he really wanted to get up front, and so he kind of weaseled his way through the crowd. He's stepping on toes, getting up in per- people's personal space, and he gets up to the front row, and, and he stays there all day long. Like, we're wondering, man, where, the, where did he go? We haven't seen him all day long. Hopefully it's okay. There's no way we're going to go check on him, because that's a lot of people to, to go through. And when the concert gets over, he emerges. He's got a big smile on his face. It's like he just, just witnessed something miraculous. And we go home, and then the next day he's complaining that his chest hurts. Like he's having a hard time breathing, which isn't a rare complaint because he's got asthma. And so, you know, like sometimes he'll say, like, I'm having a hard time breathing. But he lifts up his shirt, and he's got this vertical or a horizontal line across his chest, black and blue. He had been up in the front row. He had been pressed up against the guardrail to the point where it had bruised his chest. Okay? Like that's the kind of pressure that, that the crowd was putting on him. And so... We know that crowds can cause a lot of pressure, like physically. Like we hear horror stories about people getting trampled on on Black Friday. Um, There's stories of of people actually dying and stuff just because a crowd pushes and presses and, you know, tramples. It's crazy. And and typically when, when that's the case, there's a barrier. You know, like you go to a political rally or you go to a concert and there's a barrier. They're separating the person of interest from the rest of the crowd. But this isn't the case in Jesus's day. Jesus is out in the open, all alone. People are pressing up on him from every angle, trying to get to him, trying to touch him, trying to get his attention, and they're not being polite about how they're getting his attention. Like, it's not like tapping on the shoulder, excuse me, Mr. Jesus, may I have a moment of your time? No, people are physical with him. They're pushing up against him. People are yanking at his clothes, trying to shout to get his attention. You know, and Jesus is sensing this pressure from the crowd, and he tells his disciples, hey, guys, Things are about to get dangerous here. Like, I'm going to need you to pull up a boat and have a getaway vehicle ready. And so they do that, and Jesus is like, man, I feel like all this pressure is coming at me. Like, a dude just bear hugged me to the ground. He's trying to get my attention. Like, we got to get out of here. Not only is Jesus feeling this physical pressure from the crowd, but there's also this, this sense of need, that there's a ex- sense of expectation from these people, that they've come from all this distance. They want to touch Jesus. They want to experience Jesus. They want to see him do, do those miracles, cast out demons. And so... People everywhere are beckoning for Jesus. Do something. Show me, show me what we came to see. And he's, he's got this sort of pressure. So on one side, there's this expectation from the crowd to, to keep performing, keep jumping through the hoops, keep doing what we came here to see you do. And then on the other side, on the, on the opposite side, are these Pharisees who are, who are very critical. Who I mean, there's literally a death threat out on Jesus right now. And so they're trying to get him to stop what you're doing. Don't do it anymore. And so Jesus is in this tension of these expectations and these criticisms. And I think that if we just take a second and examine our lives, we'll see that we are kind of in that same situation too, that we know what it's like to face these high expectations. We know what it's like to face criticism. I mean, just, just think about your job. You've got a boss, supervisor, staring over your shoulders, making sure you put in X amount of hours to do X amount of tasks to X degree of, of excellence, you know, and then you go home and then you've got these expectations from your family. You know, your wife needs something from you. Husband needs something from you. You've got kids that need attention. Uh, you've got to keep the house in line, keep it nice and organized. Uh, take care of the yard hopefully soon when the snow goes away you know there's all these expectations and then and then if you're part of a missional community it's like hey now one night of your week you're going to devote it to community now you you're expected to to show up to community to contribute to community to bring food to share with people to share your life with people to be on mission with everyone else right and then and then we go back home and then there's the neighborhood has some sort of expectations community has some sort of expectation of like you need to contribute back to community you need to to be a good neighbor so these expectations keep piling up expectation pound expectation when you're doing well at meeting these expectations like you know like we can go through our laundry list of things that we have to do it. And when we can check them all off, we feel pretty good about it, right? It's like, man, look at how good I am. I'm like a Superman. I can accomplish all this stuff and continue on. But all it takes, all it takes to, to ruin that is to, to have one expectation that goes unmet. Or it takes one piece of criticism. And this is what it feels like. If, if you're building a Jenga tower uh, of your life, block by block, brick by brick, you know, kind of building it up nice and big, and, and things are kind of working, you know, you see holes, like maybe, maybe something needs to go there, or something's missing from there. But you're like, you know, overall this tower's standing up. And, and then that one expectation is like somebody coming along and just carelessly yanking out the bottom piece and the whole thing topples over. That's what it's like when we face that one expectation, that one piece of criticism that we can't do anything about. It could be getting fired, you know. 
your boss comes to you and says, hey, you're not doing a very good job. We're going to have to let you go. It could be your wife or, or your guys in the missional community say, hey, you're not, you're not doing a very good job of leading your family, like, like what was set up in the video. Or it could be your, your body is breaking down. Maybe you have a physically demanding job and, and your body can't keep up anymore. But whatever it is, the expectation goes unmet and it feels like your life is falling apart. It feels like it's an attack on your character because most of us value what we can do, right? We, we take a, a pride in the way that we live our lives, the way we, we can stack that tower. And when it topples over, it feels like it's an attack on our identity. Now, the way that we deal with expectations and criticism says a lot about who we are. It says a lot about where we find our identity. You know, it's, do you let something like that, a criticism, the ex- unmet expectation, roll off your shoulders because your identity is in something bigger? Or, or do you feel like you have to prove yourself? You know, many of us get angry and we lash out when something like that happens. We point the finger and say, hey, it's, it's your fault that my life has seemed to topple over. Some of us get knocked down off the horse and we come back even more determined to fight through and prove ourselves. And others of us, when we get knocked off, we, we're like, we throw our hands up in the air and say, I quit. There's no way I can win. So we're driven to despair. So let me ask you, when, when this is the case, because I know this is familiar. I know I, know I can't be the only one who's, who's experienced this before. When this is the case, when those expectations go unmet or when, or when there's that criticism, what do you do? Do you get angry? Do you pass the blame? Do you have to buckle down and prove yourself? Do you, do you fold? I, I haven't told this story with a lot of people, um, but when I, I was in high school, we've got a lot of high school stories today for some reason, but when I was in high school, I applied to go to school at University of Northern Iowa, and, and when I did the first time, I didn't get accepted. And it, and it was, it was kind of a big blow to me because I, I really wanted to go to UNI. That was like my school. I was like Panther Pride, and I, I didn't even know anything about it really but I really wanted to go to the school and so I got that rejection letter and I looked at it and I felt that that letter was personal it wasn't like you know this is these are your numbers and based upon your numbers you're not allowed to come to this school it was a personal thing it was like you're not good enough to come to this school and so I, I took that letter and I pinned that up right above my bed so every day when I would go to bed, when I'd wake up, I'd see that letter and I'd be reminded that you have to prove yourself today. Like you've got something to prove to everyone. You've got to buckle down and, and be smarter. You've got to be a better, I was wanting to be a trombonist, so you've got to be a better trombone player. You've got to prove yourself. And looking back now, I can see that that wasn't the gospel way to respond because if my identity were in Christ, like Tim and Lindsay were saying, if my identity were in Christ, that letter wouldn't have been such an attack to my person. So then what is the gospel way to respond? What's the gospel way to respond to criticism and expectations? Well, let's look at Jesus. What did Jesus do? He's going up. Right there, verse 13, and he went up a mountain and he called to him who he desired. Jesus went up a mountain and, and the parallel verse from, from Luke 6 where Luke is telling the same story, he says that Jesus went up to the mountain to pray and all night, all night he continued into prayer to God. You know what Jesus was doing while he was praying? He was turning to God for his identity. He was meditating on those words that came from heaven when he was being baptized, when God said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus was recounting those words. He didn't go go out and try to prove himself to the Pharisees, try to show that he could be better for them. He didn't go out and continue trying to meet the expectations of the crowd. Jesus turned to God for his identity. God validated that identity and Jesus rests in it. And so coming out of prayer in verse 13, it says he went up to the mountain and he called to them, called to him those whom he desired. What's Jesus doing here? Right, he's, he's assembling the first missional community, the first ever missional community. Jesus is saying, hey guys, come check it out. Come, come with me. He's establishing the core team for the first ever Christian church plant. But he's not just going to gather these men. Jesus is going to rename them and give them a new identity. We see this. He said, and they called them apostles. And then, the, so the group is renamed. And now he's going into the individual's lives where he says, he says, Simon, you're now going to be Peter. Right? James and John, you guys are going to be called sons of thunder. Which if you ask me, Peter got the short end of the sick because sons of thunder is a way cooler name. 
But Jesus is naming these guys. And there's something special about giving a name. There's a sense of, uh, of authority and responsibility in the namer. For example, if you look early in Genesis, God gave Adam the responsibility to name all of the animals. God delegated that authority to Adam, and then Adam had the authority to give names to the animals. There's a, there's a special responsibility, a special authority that comes with naming. And names are important. Names are important. We know this, because if someone says your name wrong or mispronounces your name, you're going to correct them, right? Like that's kind of our natural, like our names are important because it conveys the essence of who we are. Businesses spend millions and billions of dollars naming their companies. I was reading a, a, uh, a business blog this week and, and this writer said that the most important thing that a company can do, even, even more important than the product or the service that you offer, is have the right name. Because the name has an impact on how people see you. It says something about who you are. For example, this is even, even in, in personal life. Why do you think Stevlin Juntkins changed his name to Stevie Wonder? Why, why did Ralph Lauren, the designer, change his name from Ralph Lifshitz? <laughs> nobody, nobody wants to wear a shirt with that name on it, right? Why did Mary and Michael Morrison become John Wayne, huh? Like, you can't, you can't be a cowboy hero and have the same name as your grandma. Like, <laughs> these people needed to change their name in order to reinvent themselves. That's the power of the name, right? Names also have the ability to shape what we're naming to one degree or another, right? Parents give their kids names that will represent what they want their child to become. Um, my wife and I, we have an 11th month old son. His name is Kuiper Allen. And uh, I, I kind of get a kick out of telling people, strangers especially, that his name's Kuiper because they look at me like, you really named your kid Diaper? It's like, no, eh, not quite. But, but when we were naming Kuiper, um, we were really thoughtful about naming him. We wanted, we wanted to give him a name to kind of grow into. So the, the name Kuiper comes from a Dutch theologian. He was a prime minister. He led a network of, of churches. His name was Abraham Kuiper. And so we wanted, we saw that he was a man of influence. Like he had great responsibility and he did well with that. He influenced a lot of people to the glory of God. And so we were like, man, we want to name our kid with a name that where he has influence and, and he's able to use that responsibly and to the glory of God. And then Alan is, is a family name, my dad's middle name, and so my dad's one of the most hardworking men that I know, and he's down to earth, and he's very thoughtful, and, and so we wanted to give him a name, hardworking. So the, identity, the idea is that, that when we name Kuiper, we want him to be a hardworking man of influence who used that influence to God's, to God's glory, right? That's our hope, that he would be shaped by his name. But there's a limit to the authority that humans have when we name something, Parents give beautiful and strong names to their kids with the hopes of raising beautiful and strong kids, but often that doesn't happen. Just because we gave Kuiper a cool name, it doesn't make it so. Like the joke could be on us that, that someday Kuiper could grow up to, to be unable to influence himself to get off the couch. Like that, I, I hope not, I hope not, but that could become a reality. But the contrast between when humans name something and when God names something when God names something, he does so with absolute authority. And he sa- if he says it, it is so. He spoke creation into being, literally called star stars, and they became. That's the way that God speaks, and that's the way it's so. Tim Keller says that when God names, he doesn't, like when we name, describe the nature of a thing. But when God names, he determines the nature of the thing he names. So when, when Jesus is naming his disciples, he's doing so in the same manner in which God spoke creation into being. It's absolute. He isn't describing the essence of the man. He's determining their essence. He's giving them an identity. And these men are, are nothing special. If we look at them from a world perspective, these guys are nothing special. They're fishermen. Um, there's a political zealot, tax collector, and, and most of the guys are pretty anonymous about what they did as a career before they followed Jesus. And, and um, Robert Coleman, in his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, this is what he says about the disciples. By any standard of sophisticated culture, then and now, they, the disciples, would be considered as a rather ragged collection of souls, One might wonder how Jesus could ever use them. 
They were impulsive, temperamental, easily offended, and had all the prejudices of their environment. In short, these men were selected by the Lord to be his assistants, represented an average cross-section of society in their day. This is not the kind of group one would expect to win the world for Christ. So when Jesus, well, when the world looks at these disciples, there's nothing special about them, but, but Jesus sees the disciples and he sees what they lack and he says, I'm willing to make up for it. I'm willing to give you what you need to, to rise to the occasion, to rise to the calling that I have on your life. So, so Peter, like we kind of know, if you know the story of Peter, he's, he denied Jesus a few times. He was pretty unstable. But when Jesus says, I'm gonna call you Peter or I'm gonna give you the name Rock, Jesus is going to make Peter a rock. He's going to make him stable. And he does, because Peter is, is the father of the Jerusalem church, right? He's, he's stable. If Jesus says, uh, if you're paralyzed and Jesus says, get up and walk, you're going to get up and walk. Because what Jesus says is true. If you're weak and Jesus calls you strong, then you will be strong. Because what Jesus says is true. Jesus is speaking directly into their identity. He's, he's saying who they are. He's giving them a new sense of self, a distinct value. And we all are looking for, we all need this sense of identity. We have an identity hunger. We have to be known for something. So when I ask you, just what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say, who are you? What are you? Is it mom? Is it dad? Is it MC leader? Is it doctor? Is it electrician? What is it? What's the title that you give yourself when I ask you that question? Those things that, that are probably coming to your mind are, are noble things, right? They're, they're good responsibilities to have. It's good to be a mom and dad. It's good to be a doctor or an electrician or a janitor or whatever it is. It's good to be those things, but none of those things are worthy of staking your entire identity on because those things aren't for certain, they, they'll vanish. They're here one moment and then they're gone. I was reading last week in a uh, Sports Illustrated uh, an article about a college uh, football athlete. Um, well, he's now pro, but he was a college athlete. He did, had a very successful career um, playing football. He got drafted in the NFL and uh, he, was, he was there for a little while and then the NFL cut him even before the preseason was over and he got picked up by another team and on that team he was just on the practice squad so his name wasn't even going to be on the roster and then he got cut from that halfway through the season. So here he is, this, this football player, he's devoted his entire life to football and here he is sitting at home watching the entire football season unfold on his couch rather than from the field. And in this article he's recounting just how important football was to him. He got, kind of goes through his childhood and says that football gave me a family. Football gave me a purpose. Football gave me, I mean, just identity language here. Football gave me an identity. He actually even says that, that football was his salvation as a child. Like football is what made him who he was. And now here he is on the verge of an identity crisis. His career might be over. Maybe he'll come back. Maybe not. But nevertheless, at some point, his football career will end. And what will happen? What will happen to him when his identity is in being a football player and he's no longer a football player? What, what good is an identity that can be taken away from you? What good is that? That's the problem of putting our identity in something that isn't Jesus. It's not constant. It lets us down. What happens when your kids don't need you anymore like they need you now? What happens when you lose your job? What happens when you're MC? If you're an MC leader, what happens when your MC's falling apart? If you can fail or if you can lose the things that make you you and you cease to be you, what good is that identity then? If it isn't a stable core, if it isn't a sense of self that can weather any and all of life's circumstances, then it isn't an identity at all. You, you need to have something better. And Jesus offers this real this true identity. It's consistent as the sun is bright. Jesus says, if I give you an identity, it is for your good. It is industrial strength. It weathers anything life will throw at you. It assures you of your unique value and your love. It gives you purpose. And how is that? How is this identity that Jesus gives us like this? Because, because whatever God says is for certain. The sun rises on his command. The rain falls on his command. And just as certain when Jesus tells us that we have a new identity, it is so. 
But here in this passage, Jesus doesn't just give these guys a new identity and say, hey, go figure it out for yourselves. Jesus has been showing them what it's like to live in this identity. And I was going to explain to them what it looks like in this identity. And this in this passage here, um, in, the, in the second part here in 13 through um, verse 19, Jesus is going to um, show the disciples the process of what it looks like to live in and to understand your identity to a fuller degree. And that he's going to say it with this. There's three things. Being with Jesus, being in community, and living on mission. And when you participate in these things, the identity that Christ gives you becomes more and more real to you. Just like Tim and, and Lindsay were explaining in the video that, that these people are helping them understand their identity. So look at for, verse 14. He says, he appointed 12 so that for the purpose that they may be with him. And with him is not this occasional sort of, you know, acquaintance sort of mentality. Like, I'll see you on Sunday mornings and I'll see you on Wednesday night. This is like, this is like a face-to-face, like a, a life-on-life sort of intimacy. Tim Keller says that this is the language of intimacy. When Jesus says, I want to be with you, he means he wants to have an intimacy with you. Jesus is inviting us to be real with him. That's what it means to be intimate, to be with him. It means to be real with him, to be honest about who we are, to be honest about our struggles, to be honest where we're at in life. But he's also inviting us to know him, to know his character, to know his love, his grace, and his truth. And the only way to get this identity, the only way to to, to lay hands on that and to, to really make that yours is to come to Jesus and to come and experience him for yourself, to experience this remarkable love. And the, the Bible talks about this love all over the place. Ephesians 3 is, is a great place to turn to, to see this love, because he's talking about the greatness of Jesus' love. And, and I'll paraphrase it. He says that, that Jesus desires his people would be with him. He says, I desire to dwell in your hearts. I desire to ground you in love that you would come to understand, listen to this, the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of Christ's love. And it's a love that surpasses all understanding and that you would be filled up with that love. This is what Christ wants for us as we're intimate with him. But how? How do, we, how do we get to know Jesus? How do we spend time with Jesus? What's it look like? Well, first off, I just need to remind you that Jesus is the one who initiates this. Like we don't, we don't jump around trying to get Jesus' attention. We're not trying to, we're not the pursuer in this relationship. Jesus is the one who calls and responds. Look at how he calls his disciples. He, he calls who, des- who he desires and they come. Jesus is initiating. And we spend time with him. We get to know him through reading scripture, through praying, and through meditating. We read scripture because Jesus literally speaks to us in this book. His, his words are typically in red. You can see them pretty easy. But not only that, but all scripture is about him. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus was talking to two dudes, and he's telling them that, hey, just so you know, all of scripture, this whole entire thing is about me. So we can, we can go to God's word and we can learn about Jesus. We can learn about God's redemptive plan for us and how it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But it's not just enough to know about him. It's not enough to just know, his, know about his character in kind of an abstract way. It'd be like me knowing about my wife in the sense that I know she's got uh, blonde hair and, and, and bluish grayish eyes and she's got a cute smile and dimples and she likes rollerblading. That's a free one for you to keep. Um, but I know these things about my wife, and I can observe these things from a distance. Like, I can, I can kind of pick up on those things from a distance. But that would cut our relationship so short. If, I, if that were the case, I'd be missing on so much. I wouldn't be able to see how gentle-spirited she is, how compassionate she is, how loving she is, and how gracious she is. So we're, we have to not just know about, but we have to know, experience. And the same is with Jesus that we have to experience how Jesus' character, how Jesus' love intersects with our life, how it has a direct impact on who we are. And the way that we do that, the way that we know Jesus in this way is to meditate and to think deeply on these truths. 
That's how we get to know Jesus, to meditate and to think deeply on these truths. And and in doing so, the Holy Spirit does a work where he takes those things that we know and he moves them down into our heart to the point where it becomes real to us. Not not real, and yes, I know that's true, but real, and yes, this has a real impact on my life. This is what it looks like to be with Jesus. But Jesus doesn't just call us to be with him on our own little island. He doesn't call us to isolate ourselves and to be with Jesus. Jesus calls us to be with him in the context of community. That's our next one. That in community, Jesus is showing us what it's like to live in this identity. This, the word community isn't used explicitly in this text, but whenever you grab 12 dudes and pull them together, it's pretty clear that this, this community is forming, Right? And the number 12 is significant to Jews. It's like the 23 being significant to basketball players. If you say 23, talking on the basketball court, you know you're talking about Michael Jordan. But for the Jews, you say number 12 and, and, and Jesus going up the mountain. And G- what Jesus is doing is he's showing, he's demonstrating, he's reminding the Jewish people of Moses. When he grabbed the 12 tribes of Israel and he pulled them up on a mountain and then he, he constituted a new, a new nation out of them. Jesus is doing the same thing with his disciples, only better. Jesus is grabbing 12 dudes, and he's saying to them, I'm going to make you a new people. I'm going to make you a new community. I'm going to make you a new humanity. You're going to be my community, and this is, this is where your identity will flourish. In the context of community is where your, your identity will come to be. And when I say community, I know that there's, there's, uh, there's probably a lot of different views of community and what that really is. Culture has a very different view of community than what, than what Jesus talks about in community. When culture's, view, view of, culture's version of community is shallow in comparison to Jesus' version. It's formed by common interests. It's typically arranged around uh, common views, common lifestyles. It's, it's pretty homogeneous. Everybody's the same. And there's typically some sort of spoken or maybe unspoken barriers um, where the rich can't be with the poor, where singles can't intermix with couples, um, the affluent can't integrate with the lowly. There's racial, political barriers. And this all sends the message that if you're not like me, then you can't be with me. And this bond that culture creates in community isn't strong enough to weather disagreements or hurt feelings. As soon as that happens, people are probably like, deuces, I'm out of here. Like, I'm leaving. I'm going to find different people. Either that or or somebody's going to hold on to a grudge. That's the reality because the bond is so weak. We have this mentality that I'll, I'll tolerate you as long as you're fun and you're comfortable to me. But as soon as you start threatening me, as soon as you start pushing on my buttons and, and showing me where I'm weak, then I'm, I'm going to start backing away because I don't need this. Like, I don't need you telling me who I am. I don't need you telling me where I'm weak. And that's kind of the mentality. It's all, our, our, our version of community, culture's version of community, it's all about me. It's about what I need, my interests. It's about how, what I get out of it. It's about if it fits into my schedule. It's, it's all about me. But this isn't the case when Jesus is creating community. He creates a community of love with those who are with Jesus. So, so people who are with Jesus individually are now gathered together to be with him together. And, and, and the bond that, that's used to bring these guys together is the bond of love. The love of Christ is what binds us together. It's not a hippie love. It's not this idea of like, yeah, I love you in a very abstract way. This is a real, tangible, you can see it with your eyes sort of love. This is a love that is strong and it perseveres. It's in it for the long haul. It sticks together. People are real and genuine in this love. It's a place where mistakes are made and grace is given. People rejoice with those rejoicing and weep with those who are in sorrow. It's a place where weakness is exposed, but it's not exploited. It's viewed as an opportunity to believe the gospel and grow in faith. This, is, this version of community that Jesus is creating is radically different. This is a, a diverse group of people, right? We, we've seen their occupations. And, and, and this is just the start. Like if we, if we kind of take a step back and see over history just how Jesus' people have expanded, we see that every tongue, every tribe, every nation, there's a vast diversity in the people who will be with Jesus. There's socioeconomic diversity. The rich are with the poor. There's a diversity in personalities. There's a, a diversity in interests because 
because it's not our interests that bring us together. It's Christ who brings us together. So this community is not about me. This is about Christ and what Christ is doing. So let me ask you, in your community, the community that you have, whether it be missional community or, or your own community in other places, is your community like this? Is your community doing a good job of loving each other? Is your community diverse or is everybody like you? This is, this is what it means to, to, to be in gospel community. There's a diversity. There's, there's a, a, a love for one another. There's, there's an expression of just, uh, uh, to one another of what Christ has done to us. This is what it looks like to be in community. And it's in this type of community where you can grow. Because this community is motivated by love, not by interest. This is a community that's motivated by love because out of this love, people are honest with you. Tim, Tim's story was perfect because these guys loved him enough to say, hey man, you're doing a really bad job of leading your family. That's what love looks like. Love has those hard conversations and says that to But love also is very compassionate and say, hey, you're not doing a very good job and, and we still love you. That's what love looks like. This is what the type of community that we need to grow because if we don't have this sort of love, if we don't have a real honest community, then we cannot grow. We'll be stunted in our growth. And the, the third thing that we see Jesus explaining to his disciples, uh, it's kind of in their name. He says that, well, he kind of makes it twice, but he says, I'm gonna name you apostles and the word apostles means sent ones. That's, that's the definition of it. So he's calling these disciples to be with him. To, to, to fellowship with him and to commune with him and to interact with him. But he's also saying that you're not here just to kind of huddle up and to be my own little crowd. You're here to be sent out and go out to people and invite them into this community. And so he's, he's calling in them in and sending them out and he's sending them out to preach the good news. And he's calling them to, to cast out demons. And some of you guys are here like, well, that's the line where I draw, where I realize that I can't do those things. Like you're thinking, I'm probably never gonna get behind this pulpit and preach. I'm probably never gonna cast out a demon. And so you're like, well, I, I guess I'm disqualified or, or maybe this just isn't the role for me. But if you kind of take a step back at this and, and look at it from a different light, you'll see that what he's talking about is that, that, that this is to share the good news of the gospel with others and not, not in some sort of like preachy, grab your Bible and wave it at people sort of way, but to let them know in, in relationship about what Jesus has done for them. And, and, and this is essentially, when he says push back, or, uh, cast out demons, essentially push back the darkness where, where Satan and sin and, and, and death is reigning, push that back. Show them in word and deed what light looks like. This is what we can do. This is what Christians are called to do, to push back the, the darkness through the grace of God, to, to be people who, who share the good news, who are doing good things in the name of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing about community, that if community exists for community's sake, it will self-destruct. It'll become ingrown. There'll be a lot of relational drama. Everybody's self-obsessed. Um, and, and it'll just be unhealthy. But, but this idea of being sent helps a community be healthy because, because every healthy community has a mission. It has a purpose beyond themselves. The universal church, like the church across the globe, the church's purpose is to make Jesus famous and known in every tongue, tribe, and nation. The, the mission of Sacred City Church is to make Jesus known and experienced, make disciples, plant churches, renew the city here in the Quad Cities. And every missional community within Sacred City Church has a specific people and a place that they're on mission to, to be a blessing toward, to, to, to show them what it's like to be served by Christ. Being on, eh, this is, and so you're probably like, oh man, so Sam, you're saying that, that to get my identity, I've got to do this and do this and do this. And I just want to say, that's not the case. That's not the case. Being on mission, being in community, spending time with Jesus, this stuff doesn't earn us our identity. You don't have to share with 10 people a week in order to, to earn this identity. You don't have to do a bunch of Bible studies in order to, to earn this identity. You don't need to show up to missional community exactly at 6 p.m. every night to earn this identity. We don't do these things to earn this identity. We do these things because we have been given a new identity. These things are an overflow, an outpouring of what our identity really is. This comes naturally to us as long as we're believing the gospel right. 
we believe the gospel right, these things will naturally happen. This means that if, if you're not living on mission, if you're not living in community, if you're not spending time with Jesus, you don't understand the gospel. That, that might sound harsh, but that's a reality. That if you're not doing these things, if you're not, if you're not immersing yourself in the love of Christ and just, just letting that love wash over you, if you're not being in the context of community where you can share that love with others and receive that love from others, if you're not being on mission to, to show the world, to show your unbelieving neighbors or your coworkers what that looks like, you're failing to believe the gospel. But there's hope for us. Because once again, our identity is not in those things. Our identity is given to us. And so as I close... I just want to remind you, and, it, and maybe if you don't know the gospel, I want to tell you the good news. I want to tell you what Jesus has done to give you a new identity because we must be reminded awful, often because we're so prone to forgetfulness. Life gets busy and we forget, right? Luther, Martin Luther in his commentary on Galatians says this, that most necessary it is therefore that we should know this gospel well and teach it to others and beat it into our heads continually. Like we have to keep revisiting this gospel. Why? Why do we need to revisit the gospel? Because the gospel is the good news that we have a new identity, an identity that lasts, an identity that tells us that we're love, identity that drives us into community instead of keeping us away from community, an identity that gives us a purpose. So I want to tell you, I remind you, how Jesus gives us a new identity. And I say new identity because we've always had an identity. It's just been a really awful one, right? Our identity, Ephesians 2 says, that we were children of wrath. That we were dead in our trespasses and sin, and because of that, we were cut off from God. This was our identity, children of wrath. That we were following the wicked course of the world. We were slaves to darkness, full of death and disobedience. We lived according to our pla- the passions of our flesh, trying to earn our identity, trying to make a name for ourselves. That's what children of wrath do. Children of wrath try to earn their identity. And because of our earning and our failing, because of our, our critiques and the expectations that go unmissed, sin has caused us to be ashamed. And we have hidden from God. We have, we've walked away from God. We've, we've walked away from community. We've been completely humiliated because of sin. It's robbed us of the purpose that God created us for. But listen, these are, are probably my favorite words in the Bible. <clears throat> comes from Ephesians 2 verse 4. It says this, the best words. But God... But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God is rich in mercy. That his love is powerful. He loves us not because we're lovely, but because he's loving. That's who God is. And he does this and he makes us alive together with Christ. And this is how he sent Jesus, the son of God, to put on flesh to live among us, and, and he lived a life that we couldn't live. Because here, here we were on life when we were pursuing darkness, when we were wa- walking in darkness, being driven by sin and temptation, and here Jesus Christ is walking the same life, and he's doing so in the light. He's doing it perfectly. And here's the thing, Jesus perfectly lived in the identity that God gave him, to live as the son of God. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. This is the identity that Jesus lived in. And he did everything perfectly, but then this, this is what Jesus did. Instead of going up this other mountain that we see here in chapter 3 of Mark, Jesus goes up a different mountain. Jesus goes up that mountain and he spreads out his arms on the cross. And this is what he did. Jesus, Jesus swapped us identities. He said, you guys were once children of wrath. Sam was once a child of wrath. And now I'm going to take that identity upon myself. Guys, God, Jesus took our identity, this pain, this toiling, this struggle, this ashamedness, this grief, everything that that we hate about our fallen nature, Jesus took upon himself and he paid for our sins there on the cross. But he didn't just pay for our sins and say, okay, now you guys are off the hook, but he gave us this identity. He gave us a new identity, calls us sons and daughters of the king. That we share in this identity of Christ. Not, not only, uh, well, so, so when we hear God say to Jesus, this is my son with whom I will please, God is saying that to us. Those are words for us because we are hidden with Christ in God. Those are 
words for us, but he doesn't just say, you know, I'm, I'm pleased with you. This is what God does. Keep going in, in Ephesians. He says, and he raises us up with him with Jesus, and he has seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? That we are lifted up with Jesus. That we are placed in heavenly places. God is in heavenly places. That we are now communing with God. This is what Jesus offers us in our new identity. And this is accomplished by grace alone. Like I said, you cannot earn this. There's no way. This is, guys, this is impossible for us to earn. This is a gift of God. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the work of Jesus Christ that earns us this, that, that is, it's now a gift to us. And all we do is receive in faith this gift, this new identity, and now we live in it. Now we live in it. We, so as we live, we have the option. This is, these are our options. Am I going to live as a son of wrath? Am I going to live as a daughter of wrath and walk in darkness and, and ex- continue to experience this, this pain and turmoil and anguish and suffering and misery? Or, or am I going to receive the identity that Jesus Christ gives me? Am I going to, to embrace the identity of a child of God? That's our choice. And this is good news for us because I don't know about you. I, I am incredibly tired and weary of trying to make a name for myself. I can't keep it up. Like maybe, maybe you can, but, but at some point it's going to give out on you. It's going to be miserable. It's going to feel like that Jenga tower cri- crumbling all over again. I'm tired of the way that, that these expectations have a way of jerking my t- chain. I'm tired of the way that criticism feels like a personal attack on my identity. So this is good news for me. This is good news for us because this means that our identity is secure. This means you can't prove it. This means you can't prove it. This means that, that nobody can take it from you. That, uh, uh, that, that no matter what you do, that it's secure in Christ. Yeah, I, I can't even recall uh, the, the liturgy and, and the, the, one of the worship songs was just so, I mean, just directly right into this. Maybe Joel will play that song, but talking about our identity hidden with Christ and God, and that's where it's at. Like nothing can, can separate us from that. And so as we live in this identity, as we live in these rhythms, as we kind of go through the process of, of being with Jesus and living in community and living on mission, that, that this identity becomes more and more real to us, that we can know to an even greater degree of what Jesus has done for us and what he's doing across the world. And so as I close, I just want to, to invite you that if you haven't ever put your faith in Jesus, if you are trying to make a name for yourself, if you are just striving and striving trying to meet expectation after expectation, knocking back criticism after criticism, I want to invite you to come find your identity in Christ. I want you to know that you are a cherished, loved, valued child of God. And, and if this is you, if you're thinking, I need to put my faith in Christ or I want to put my faith in Christ, I, I would encourage you to come see me or one of the men that's going to be serving communion and have a, have, have a conversation, what it looks like, what's your next step in discipleship, and so that you can join this community uh, on mission. You can join our, our church family on mission. And, and for those of you who are listening and, and you have a community or maybe you have no community, but your community doesn't look like this kind of community that, that Jesus has created, a real, genuine, loving community, then I want to encourage you to join us in community. In the back uh, of the entryway, there's, there's a big board with all our missional communities. And it's got the times, the dates, all the stuff where, where they meet. I would encourage you to go there, find somebody. I mean, you could probably just turn around and talk to somebody, and they're in a missional community. Talk to somebody and say, hey, what do I have to do to get in a missional community? And join these people who love Jesus, who want to see you flourish in your identity. Join them in community. And if, and if you aren't living on mission... If you aren't sharing the gospel with others in word or in deed, if you're not pushing back the darkness around you, then I would invite you to join the same missional community where people can understand, can help you understand what it means to be a missionary here in the Quad Cities. Where people can remind you that Jesus left the comfort of heaven. Jesus abandoned his identity to give you your identity. 
so that you could do the same with others, that you could set aside your comfort and move towards others and explain to them the identity that's in Christ. So you can find all that information in the back of the church. Um, But this is what it looks like to be a disciple. This is what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to be with him, to, to be intimate with Jesus, to know him and to know and be known by him to be in community with other people in the same boat where they're knowing and being known by Jesus and then, and then you're loving one another and you're, you're, there's tangible, evident ways in which you're loving each other. <clears throat> and then to be on mission, right? Disciples make disciples. There is no such thing as a disciple that doesn't make disciples. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you're a disciple maker. And so disciples live on mission. They, they share with others the good news of Jesus Christ and they push back the darkness. Let's turn to our Father and pray. Father God, we, we thank you for our identity. Lord God, we thank you for what you have done in order to give us this identity because this, this wasn't a cheap exchange. This wasn't a... Uh, Uh, sort of a a swap sort of a thing, like you take this, I'll take that. This was a very costly, very expensive, very demanding thing that Jesus had to go through in order to give us our new identity. And so, Lord, we thank you for Jesus, for sending your son. We thank you for your spirit in which uh, is is making this gospel known to us. And even now, as we're reflecting on your word and and letting the word penetrate our hearts and get deep down, the spirit is doing something in us to, to help remind us of this identity. So God, we thank you for how you work in your triune nature and in ordaining all of this to happen. And Lord, I pray that as disciples of you, as, as your followers, that you would help us to live in the manner in which you've called us to live. That we would live a, a life of gospel-centeredness, that, that we would be all about the gospel, nothing else but all about the gospel. And that gospel would drive us into community and on mission. Okay, and I pray for those who, who maybe don't know their identity yet, that they would come to find it. That, that they would stop striving and stri- stop trying to earn it and make a name for themselves and come to Jesus and receive with an open hand just as we receive communion with an open hand, receive this identity in which Christ has given us. Lord God, and by this, through the making of disciples, we would see churches planted, that we would see people coming to faith from all across the cities and that our cities would be renewed because these cities need people who have a secure identity. These peop- the cities need people who, who love unconditionally, who love, who love day in and day out. These people need, the city needs people who, who are pushing back darkness and, and through, through that, Lord, through our efforts, through our spirit-led efforts, God, would the darkness be pushed back and our city be renewed? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.